Welcome back to Uncensored CMO, everybody, and returning guest this time, the most uncensored guest I've ever had on my podcast. I know you've guessed it. It's Mark Ritson, and we're here to talk about the biggest stories of the year. We've looked through the archives on LinkedIn. We've looked at Marketing Week. We've dug out the things we're all talking about to have a proper conversation about what on earth's going on in the world of marketing. You're going to love this. Mark, as always, is properly uncensored. Here we go. So listen, mate, you've been around the world a bit. What are you seeing like globally? How's marketing doing around the world? How do you oh, there's it? lots of things going on. I mean, I'm, I'm reserved to the English-speaking world. Mm. So that's, I mean, I've done Canada, obviously Oz, Canada, US, UK in the last two weeks. There's a couple of themes that everyone is depressed. It's a weird depression, right? Yeah. It's a mix of obviously economic recession. Everything's down. There's no growth. There won't be any next year. Everybody knows that. But it beats a global pandemic. So there's this curious lack of downness about it, even though everyone's down. And you feel it's, it's you know, it really is palpable, right? So that's the way, it took me a while to work that out. But you go to Vancouver or Toronto or New York or London and you go, the streets, the, the pubs feel exactly the same. No one's, you know, it's not bad. Like when the, you know, when the Queen died and Trust was Prime Minister here, it was horrible for a few weeks. It's not like that because everyone's like, you know what? This is better than being locked up in my house with a global pandemic. Although we yeah. are locked in with yeah. your producer. Well, we are. I know. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> we, apart from us. So that's yeah. the first thing I'm definitely seeing. And I, I, I'm no economic expert. I don't see any change next year. Why would there be? And I don't think there'll be much in 25 either. Mm. I think we've got a couple of, of like this, soft, depressed, full employment, shitty years. Yeah. It doesn't then dispel the hypothesis that we might get a roaring 20s. Students of history will know, right, that the 20s, 100 yeah. years ago, yeah. war, depression, and then boom, you know. It could still very much happen. So let's hope so. And the other thing which, you know, isn't politically correct and isn't going to make me any friends, but I continue to observe how weak American marketing is compared to the rest of the world which, again, that can come across as I hate America, I love America, I lived there a long time, some of my best friends are American, like it's probably the best country in the world. And they were the great marketing leaders for 60, 70 years. You went there to learn your trade. Man, they're off the pace. Why is that? What, I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, they're really obsessed with the peripheral elements of culture and culture war and, you know, what your slide... No, it's not what your slide says, but have you ticked all the boxes in the in the various representations of your slides, which is important, but not the only thing. Um, and there's kind of this just, I think, corporate dishonesty where no one tells anyone to go fuck themselves anymore. That's a part of business, you know what I mean? To respectfully tell each other, that's wrong, mate. You, you, you're, you're off the pace there, right? No one's doing that anymore. And when they do, or they're getting some kind of formal complaint about it. So I, I feel quite sad for American marketers. You know, there's all these people saying, when will we get an American, you know, Pete and Les or Byron Sharp? And I'm like, you guys are so far away from that. You don't even understand the current literature. And if you compare it to what's happening definitely in the UK, also in Australia, also in parts of Europe, which has never happened before. I'm old enough now to be able to say that. You know, we're talking about the, like the, the good CMOs in yeah. the UK. They are pretty good. They all know the basics. They've got, they're on top of the effectiveness literature. They know your stuff. They're fueled by decent data. Uh, they're doing good testing. They have decent strategic awareness. They're very distinctive. I think we are in a, living in a great time for marketing and advertising uh, because some big thinkers, Ehrenberg Bass, Field and Burnett, have produced great work and the practitioners yeah. follow it. It does feel like that, doesn't it? Like it we, does. You know, we've gone from an era of, I mean, call it brand building, and then we got into performance, and then it feels like we've kind of come out of that with a pretty balanced view and marketers, evidence-based marketers now that are really killing it on a to number of brands. It's I mean, totally right. And I think part of it is it's not being locked up in the universities who are an appalling bunch of fuckers, right? Mm. So universities take public money, at least in business schools, do all of this very ac academic, very slow research, and then publish it in journals that literally nobody has access to. <laughs> it's a terrifyingly <laughs> so bad true. knowledge dissemination model. So when you start getting Ehrenberg Bass going, basically, is a book, or join our center, <laughs> or Pete and Les give a talk, or do a manuscript, or the IPA does a thing, and we stick it on YouTube, 
we've now got a much better dissemination machine. And yeah. I think that's what it is, right? That's I, what it is. I, I find this is, this really drives me wild. I can't remember what debate I was having with Byron on, on LinkedIn, but he quoted like a gazillion, you know, links to articles somewhere. Right? Written by him. You know, yeah, exactly, right? And I'm like, honestly, mate, like no one in marketing actually reads that literature. Nobody. I mean, this, this is a problem, right? You've got to get it out of the, out of the journal of whatever, whatever, whatever. Yeah. It's got to get in the public domain, right? It's got to be translated. It's got to be made available or synthesized or whatever. Well, he, he's, look, and he's got a double loss there because it's academic, but it's only his institute stuff. Like a couple of weeks ago, I mean, I love it when he publishes stuff, but he'd done a little monograph of Ehrenberg Bass about... Um, you know, long-term brand building and its importance. And there's no fucking reference to Field and Burnett. And I, so I actually commented, because I very rarely comment on that kind of stuff, and I'm like, hey, whenever anyone mentions salience or distinctiveness, you're right up them going, you cannot mention this without Ehrenberg Bass. So here's you talking about long-term brand building and the impact and the lot and the radio. Did it never occur to you, you might want to reference the seminal work from 10 years on this, because you're basically saying what those guys said. You know, and it it doesn't take anything away from Ehrenberg Bass's work, and it's brilliance and massive influence, which we certainly it's part of the improvement, totally, a big yeah, part, yeah, right? Yeah. But huge. I wish they stopped smoking just their own crack yeah. and and have some yeah. other drugs involved. Yeah. It's pathetic, yeah. frankly. They, if yeah. you're sci if you're going to be a scientist, yeah. let's let's reference other work other than the stuff that you're brewing in your own laboratory. Yeah. You know what I mean? And everybody knows it's pathetic. Do you know what I mean? Mm, totally. But anyway, the, the problem I run into repeatedly is marketing people's inability to hold two contradictory thoughts at the mm. same time, right? I love Ehrenberg Bass. Byron Sharp is my hero. Ehrenberg Bass get things wrong. Byron fucks up, right? Yeah. yeah. Wait, wait, what did you say? <laughs> I said both of those things at the same time, and yeah. it doesn't cause me any problems at yeah. all. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I totally know what you mean. Can we try and get our heads around that fucking point? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 That's such a good point. Festival of Marketing. Yes. Top 100 CMOs. Very exciting. Yes. To see them all out there. The global reach around. Indeed, indeed. But I thought I'd congratulate you. Rob Mayhew called you the Gary Vee of Australia. That must feel good. He's a fucker. We did we did the promo for it, for Festival of Marketing, me and him. And it's kind of, I just followed his script, right? He's so good, man. He's so good. And he, that he, he coined that term when we were doing the promo, and I thought that's that was that was good. genius. That's the that, ultimate compliment. That stood you know out, I mean? didn't it? I love. No, that. he's very funny. I think he knows the industry so well that he's actually able to be yeah. funny on such a you know in yeah. a way no one else understands. He can pick the tiniest little thing. Can't oh, no, he? I'm he's honored. On it. I'm honored by that. You're title. on it, mate. Yeah, I should have it. to get some business cards. I think done. we need a t-shirt, don't we? Um, <laughs> but yeah, but look, I, I, I'm big respect for our top 100 marketers. Marketing Week do a great job nominating them. I have never won one. Just just putting that on the record. So just to I've be clear, because I don't, you know, I, I don't pay attention to no, many I, things. Is it an actual ranking from one to hundred, or do they group it up? No, still? it's a, it's a ranking. Well, it's, it's ranked and grouped, so it is a ranking. But it's like I think it's top ten retail, maybe it's top ten FMCG. But do top, they have like a Grand Prix so, at the top? I think so. I'm pretty sure they do. Yeah. Do you know who won? Yeah. Who I won? don't actually. I should, I, should, I should have done my research. Who won? Yeah, who won? Who won? Breaking news, you know, sort of yeah, thing. He's the best, you know. Exactly, you know. But like, it's a big deal, isn't it? And I, but anyway, this year I've made a top one hundred. That for the first time ever. I forget sometimes that you're a CCO slash CMO. I, I, yeah, I know. I change. I just it think regularly. of you as a DJ now. Exactly. Well, exactly. Well, <laughs> the Michael Parker. But can, can you guess what top one hundred I won? So which category? This will blow your mind. Well, it would have to be in. Media, wouldn't it? So, performance marketer. That Most influential sense. performance marketer. Performance marketing world. I'm number 26 on the performance marketing world, top 100 most influential marketers. Wait, 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 wait. I know. <laughs> uh, but, but, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm totally stumbled by that. No, so. I was as well. I, but I, by the way, they listen to the show, so I should say amazing publication, Performance Marketing World, just just to get it out there before I upset But you're anybody. all smoking crack is it's, the indeed, second number line. 26, 26 most influential performance marketers. In the top quartile almost. But I love this, performance right? Marketers. I love this. Is that global or UK? I'm going to pretend it's global. I All don't right. know if it's global. I'm going to, I'm going to call I it global. I don't think it's going to matter. But, look, but what it does, right, firstly, two things. Firstly, performance marketing, recognising some stuff outside of the normal performance marketing box. I'm like, fair play. That's not bad. Yeah, Extending I mean, the, you know, I think when performance marketing starts ranking people that don't do performance marketing, exactly. in the top 100, I mean, it's like, it says it's a, a lot. thing. It does, yeah. doesn't it? And secondly, like, 
I've, I've had the kids take the piss out of me forever in my career for you don't really know how marketing works, John, do you? Sort of thing. I'm just going, you're talking to the 26th most influential performance marketer. Just have you know. Well, I think it's, it's, it's like my I've got a lifetime of defence now against the accusation. I don't think it works though until you go on LinkedIn and, and profess your humblement at your ranking. This is where I've then gone wrong. Then you can lock it. Okay, in. okay. I need to do the humble brag. Don't I, I, I don't want hum- to. I don't want to. I don't want to brag, but I'm humbled. I'm humbled to be twenty sixth. To be twenty sixth in, in the world on performance marketing. There you go. Well, mate, it's, cha- it's a life changing accolade. It is. <laughs> anyway, we better get back to some big stories of the year because yes, yes, yes. because because. Uh, I, the kind Russell Parsons at Marketing Week did the send me... champion of Marketing indeed, Week. Indeed, I know. Must shout out to him, actually. Thank him. He did send me the most read articles you've written this year. Oh, that's interesting. I know, I know, exactly. But being the pro that he is, he wouldn't totally reveal the order, but he gave me the list, right? That's so, interesting too. Yeah, no I know. fucking articles, can't you tell me? I know, well, I'm, do, 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 you get to, do you get to know, by the way? Does I have zero tell? interest no. in any of this. You just set, so, put couple, it out there. A couple then. of things, having done 20 years as a columnist, there's no... Uh, correlation between how long you spend on a column no. and how popular it is, and there's really no rhyme or reason to what's popular or not. As we're about, okay. To well, find let out. me ask you there. Let me flip it. So I did two things. I, did, I got him to give me this, and I looked at your LinkedIn and ranked your LinkedIn. So, do what you did know, you rank my LinkedIn on? Oh, on the engagement, on the, right? Yeah, oh, public I, well, engagement. you get engagement. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know so, that. Yeah, yeah. That. So you know that one. You know what's number one? On I know what number one must be that uh, feared ad. No, holy no, shit! No, no, a, no, 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 no. A bazillion views. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybelline. Hey? Yeah, you know the you know the Maybelline. Uh, it was a tube and a bus going through the, that, with the yeah 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 yeah. Your that the Maybelline post. Mind boggling. That's one second. Yeah. On a toilet. Yeah yeah. At Eleven o'clock at night. Exactly. Going. We could learn something from this. Look at this. Yeah, a stunt. It was like it was like when you used to float something down the Thames and then put it out there yeah, and everyone the, would talk the CGI, about it. It was the CGI yeah. sort of modern version of that, right? It's interesting, isn't it? Now, because at one point that's like, oh, you got like a million views or something, mm. right? Mm. But of what value is that to me? Almost zero, right? Because no. it's just someone going, "There's the Maybelline stuff." Yeah, Do you know exactly, what I mean? Exactly. Yeah, it's just the you got top that nice of the combination day. of yeah. the, you know. Yeah, it's very, just visual stunt. I thought it was interesting. Holy anyway. shit! We'll, we'll skip past number one so we can have a proper conversation. But um, okay, top five most read. Marketing Week articles. Let's start with Guinness. Yeah, that's a good story. Uh, so uh, Neil Shah is at the Marketing Academy talk in London a year and a bit ago, and I and I'm talking there as well. You know, we all talk at the Marketing Academy at some point, and so we sort of stood to one side while someone else is talking, and he, we introduce each other, and I say. Um, How's it going? He said, actually, we're, we're pretty close to becoming the best-selling beer in England. And I'm like, fuck oh, That's pretty amazing. And I'm saying, is that true? And yeah. he's like, yeah, yeah, we really are. We're very close. I said, could I write about that and how you've done it? And he's like, and Neil is a genuinely quiet, reserved, humble guy. Do you know what I mean? And he's like, well, mm, look, if we really get something, I'll let you know. I'm like, okay. And he didn't. So I just, yeah. I just emailed him a couple of times. Come on, mate, let's do it. Let's do it. And then it was a trade journal was saying they're number one. And I like, come on, mate. I, I'm gonna it's write out there now. Come I'm on. I'm going to write about it whether or not you help me or not. He's like, okay. So we did a quick interview. And the one thing he did was he said, I don't want you to mention my name. I want you to talk about the team. So you did. So I mentioned his name, right? Because <laughs> other people have said this before, but what they're really yeah. saying is mention my fucking name. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And um, he, he said to me, you can't publish it. I don't want my name in there. Put the team in there. I said, and it, it, th- that's the quality of the guy. That's nice. He said, Diageo's not a culture where we do this kind of thing. Mm. It's about the team, and it is a team effort. And I thought, fuck, it's a real deal, man. Yeah, yeah. So I wrote that up, and it's interesting. Like, I get credit for making that even more famous, but <laughs> I did absolutely <laughs> no work on it, obviously. I just think that's where Neil did all – it's a recurring theme, right? He did all the basics of effectiveness brilliantly, I'm sure Neil is the first one to say absolutely nothing unique or different. You've got distinctiveness, you've got tight positioning, you've got multimedia, you've got long and short, you've got good econometric modeling in-house, and you've got long, long, long-term strategy, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And what do you know? It yeah, works. It works, right? It works. It, it yeah. works real well. And, yeah. Um, yeah, that's good. That's good. I'm happy yeah. because... Um, it's a good brand, it but it's is. also a good brand management team. It is. Diageo are doing very well at the moment. They're doing really well. If you notice as well, if you look around, John, at all the brands that are like in the – I did the uh, Brand Z thing last week, this week as well, at top 500, 100, whatever. They're all the traditional bread and butter brands like Dove, Guinness, uh, Cadbury. 
Do you know what I mean? Vodafone. It totally is. But have you noticed like all the kind of overvalued D2C brands that had crazy valuations yeah. two years ago that are losing hundreds of millions of pounds a year, right? That that all that is out and all it's the part of it, we yeah. can you know, we know where the money is. It's brands, a tradi- it's a, yeah. it's really is a turn to traditional stuff. There which is. Yeah. Really rather delights me as an old fashioned yeah. person. But um yeah, it's um it's good news. I'm pleased for Neil, I'm pleased for, pleased for Guinness. Um and I think it's a great story. And, and, and it goes without saying, I mean, I'm going to promote myself now, but that article's well worth reading. It's really good. Because it's, it's really, really it's, yeah. again, there's nothing yeah. fancy in there. It's just... But it, you're right. You, you hit it on it. It's doing the basics really well. I mean, the distinctive assets, I, I just find that it's such a case study in using your yeah. distinctive assets really well. I mean, the, yeah. every time I see Guinness, I'm like, fair play. You know, Neil's the first one to say, though, that... It, it, it's the natural beauty of the brand, right? I think yeah. it's the third most distinctive brand in the world. Totally. According yeah. to the data. So you kind of got to screw it. I mean, yeah. Yeah, most marketers would still screw that up and turn <laughs> it pink, right? Yeah. But he kind of got that and made with that. But the rest of the work around it, he sort of went into category entry points, if you look at it. I mean, it is an unusual brand. We all drink a bit of Guinness, don't we? Not as much as certain people we know, but um, it is a brand where in the winter you feel like a Guinness and in the summer you feel like a Guinness. You know what I mean? It has a lot mm. of entry points. So I think they very successfully pushed those. The big point of the article was they built up a big head of steam during COVID when all the bars were closed. So the first beer, and they talked about mm. it that way, what's the first beer that you get when you get back in a pub and they open will be a Guinness. That's true. So they built up that pent-up long-term demand, yeah. even though you couldn't get it in the bar at the time or go to a bar. And I think that's a brilliant yeah. – that was that was definitely yeah. part of their strategy. The entry point point is a good one. I mean, even the outdoor campaign the, last year with the surfboard, that was flipping – we tested Playing it system it one, actually. That, yeah. Again, we saw it in the testing we did, like, you know, oh, I had never not thought about having a Guinness in the summer, you know, trigger. No, they've pushed it Very hard. Very powerful, they've, yeah. They've used that sort of playing with codes – with the category entry points very yeah. nicely, right? Now they're, they're really a, they'll, yeah. they'll just get better, that team. Yeah. And their activation is amazing as well, given, you know, Diageo do that really well. So was that number 10 or was that just one of the 10? That was uh, that was very high up the list. Basically, we, we, we combined, uh, well, oh, you've combined <laughs> I say them. this research, I combined marketing week performance with your LinkedIn performance. Very good. And that nice comes one. out um, top three. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Link to that, actually, uh, the long and the short of it article as well also was top three. On Which both one's that? LinkedIn. The one that you gave me data for? That one, yes. <laughs> yes. Well, that's you, not me. Um, so that came out of... Which one of the team was it that collared me? So that would be Nick. It was probably I Nick, I think. Yeah, yeah, because we'd done this whole... We, 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 we'd been struggling a little bit with this in terms of like... So obviously, long and short, do different things, all the kind of thing we know and love. We were seeing, it was Audi that sparked it. We were seeing Audi nailing the long and getting these really good uplifts short term. And they got this IPA case study. It's absolutely wicked. And we were seeing them nailing it on short as well. And we just, hang on, what's the data telling us? And it's could, a very could, long could, campaign. It yeah, yeah. And, it's, and, it, and what we were working out is the longer you go, the, more, the bigger the campaign effect, the more the short works. We were seeing their short pay up, get better and better and better as they were sticking to their long sort of thing. And we're like, oh, this is interesting. You know, it's just... So that explains it because it happened yeah. exactly a year ago. Last <laughs> year's Festival of Marketing, I'm in the pub on the corner. Of course I am. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, during one of the, uh, I'm sure, scheduled breaks. And, um, yeah, Nick came in, and he's saying, oh, I, I must have talked about long and short or something. And he said, oh, that was great. Yeah, he talked about long and short. It's not true, though, you know. And I'm like, how do you mean it's not true? He went, well, it's long and short versus short. And it was enough for me to go, all right, then, what are you talking about? And he, 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 I said, all right, send me the data. Let me have a look at this. And I, think, I even think he sent it to me on the plane. Yeah. And I remember looking at that the famous chart yeah. And going, and it's quite, a, you know, your charts are always beautifully simple, and that's, that's a definitely a, a plus point, but it's quite a complex point because mm. what you have to show is when you have great long, you always get short as well. But when you have great short, you don't automatically get good long. And totally. it, it takes a little time. Tw- it does, tw- it does. I've played around, I've showed it to several clients in order to get that point across, you've really got to be quite elegant yeah. in how you strip the data, right? We did we did cut that loads of ways to try and I talked to him about it. it I, I, yeah. I think you must have done that, yeah. In the end, there is a way to do it, but it's bloody hard. Anyway, it is hard. but the point that comes out of that data, and there's like you've got 20,000 data points, right, is, yeah, yeah. you've got a really kick-ass brand-building campaign. Yeah. It's going to build short-term demand immediately as well, yeah. which kind of fucks up the whole idea of, you know, People say, no, I don't want to build brand because I need short-term results. You're going to get it. Yeah. And then the question I get from clients is, well, 
this whole long and short thing is bullshit then. It's just basically, and I'm like, no. No. Long gives you short. That's the good news. But as you, as a specific example of a client, <laughs> do too much short, you're getting no long. Yeah, exactly. And that's, yeah. that's where the long, so it is long, short versus just well, short. It might, it, might, it might be a wording thing, but Orlando beautifully came mm. up with it where he just said it's lasting. It's not, it's not that you have to wait. He called them lasting effects. It's nice. It won't, it won't catch on, but it's very no, nice. No, it doesn't fit with the, you know, it doesn't fit with it the It hasn't got the something title, like, but... you know, mental bazookas or something, which you need to have <laughs> to get the word across. Do you know what I mean? You need something, something more sexy than that. Exactly. But he's right. He's he definitely right. Okay, so rounding out the top three here, the third, based on the combination of the two, is our friend Cabri. Oh, I'm delighted so with that. This, th- th- I think, again, it's quite hard to work out number one. I think this is probably the number one story, actually, if I combine both data That's, together. That makes me happy. Now, here's the thing, right? So, uh, actually, I'll ask you to guess. How many new TV campaigns do you think System 1 have tested in the last 12 months? 50,000. <laughs> not quite, not quite. But globally, yes, actually. In the yeah. UK, 3,886, right? In, the, in what, what period? Since, since January. So since okay, January okay, in the UK, right, we've automatically tested British just this ads, year. British yeah, yeah. Ads, yeah. 3,886, right? And the number one ad is? It's garage. Exactly. You called it, right? Uh, you didn't have the data. Out of the 3,886, the number one. It's the best ad ever made, in it's, my opinion. It's, well, data suggests that. 5.9. In fact, it tops our scale. It's the equivalent of the best Christmas <laughs> ads of last two years. No, no. I, and, and, you know, I must say that's the one thing that doesn't surprise me. But you remember, I did it before with you once. What was the campaign where you were like, this? I'd written about a campaign and you yes. said to me, it's not testing very well. I said, test it in America. It's testing great. That's oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Do you remember yeah, that? And you yeah. were like, it is testing. Yeah, in sure. what was that? No, no, you're right. You're right. Because you were saying it's not so good. I'm no, like, no, no, no. Oh. It's a British sample, mate. Do the American sample, you'll see. And you're oh. like, oh, was it Aviation Gin? Or... Might have been. It was something anyway. It was some or Peloton. Maybe it's Peloton. Was it Peloton? I think it was Peloton. I think it's Peloton. And yeah. it tested it, it okay. Tested, it tested like one and a half star over here. And I'm like, and dude, honestly. And you honestly, were saying to me, this campaign this, isn't this very good. good. Don't, don't, go, don't go deep on this one. And then it, you're right, in America, it was great. But yeah, Cadbury's, so Garage, if you haven't seen it, listener. Yeah. So the story I wrote, which I think I'm very pleased with because it, it took literally 15 years to write, the Gorilla campaign is an amazing campaign. And it's basically a, a, the creative director at Fallon just has an idea. Let's have a gorilla playing the drums, as we know, and, it, you know, blah, blah, blah. The rest is history. Every, it's a very venerated campaign. The problem with that wonderful, wonderful ad is because there wasn't really a strategy behind it. There wasn't legs. There wasn't a lasting focus. It, 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 and what I would call campaignability. I know you guys call fluent device. That's fl- right, yeah, fluent, fluent devices, yeah. But not the not the not the tangible a repeat, thing. A repeat, a repeat story. Thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Campaign ability. Yeah. It then led to a series of ads that were shit house. Yeah. I mean, not shit house, but, but well, yeah, shit house, right? And they really didn't have a, a second or third album. Yeah. And actually, it led. If you look from about 07 to fifteen, it led to a really rather bad time for Cadbury. They were really starting to hemorrhage sales and share. So in comes this really good team. Team is pretty much fixed, right? In comes VCCP, in comes some proper heritage research, loyalist research, quant research, and this really obvious but amazing insight that at the heart of this brand, from the Quakerism of the Cadbury family, from the glass and a half yeah. of, the, of the products of the original heritage communication is generosity. But not let's have a party, national lottery generosity, yeah quiet, emotional, personal generosity. And I think it's 2017 they start, and they start with that famous ad in the corner news agents and the little girl with her unicorn. It's beautiful, Mm. beautiful ad. Then there's the lovely one with with the fella in the car, and he's nervous. He's like 50. He's going for his first new job, and his son's put him a little bar of Cadbury's in the glove compartment. Beautiful Mm. ad. But garage. Yeah. Garage is something else. And I don't want to spoil it for listeners, but if you look at a couple of things, you you should pause the podcast, go to Google and watch Garage and come back, right? Yeah. Because the casting is sensational. Mm. He has to look both like a potential predator (laughs) and your dad. She's got to look like a loving daughter and a potential victim. I'm I'm overstating it, but I'm not. There's a little frisson of danger in those first yeah. five seconds that makes everything so beautiful. Yeah. 
and there's the 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 the, the other than the casting that the, if you look at the dialogue of that thing the bravery of Cadbury when when he says I'll have one of those he doesn't name the brand it would have been so easy mm. to break the spell early and go Cadbury I'll ever buy that Cadbury's mm. they didn't want to sully it and they let that happen yeah mm. so for me it, I think it will become the great ad but the point is if you put it up against Surfer or Gorilla it doesn't really win. Yeah. But that's not the point. Yeah. It's one of 500 ads that we'll see in 50 years, and they're all together better than that one-off ad. Well, I'll give you the data, right? So uh, I went through the other iterations in the campaign. Mum's birthday, 5.9. Secret yeah. Santa, 5.1. Fence, 5.1. So if, if you look at the system on database... It's very rare to get a five star. Like occasion, some people, 1%, like right? John, John Lewis, yeah, John Lewis, uh, uh, twice got a five star, right? And they and they put a lot into it to get five star consistently in a campaign. Mm. That is next level. I mean, the only other advertiser I would reference that does that is Audi with Kevin the Carrot. They've just they've got a way of telling. What the about story. Specsavers, John? Would they be close? Specsavers would do that occasionally. Yeah, I mean, I, so, I wrote, so the other ones that do occasionally would be Yorkshire, Yorkshire, Yorkshire Tea. Tea. Yorkshire yep. Tea go four or five star. So th- th- they would be, if you put four and five stars together, they do it. Warburton's again. Warburton's would be like consistent four or five star. Yep. Consistent five star, you're in very rare territory. Very rare territory. Well, I think that's it. It's cr- I mean, VCCP need a lot of credit here, right? The work's fantastic. The client team is unchanging, which we don't talk about enough, right? It's a real yeah. strong, strong team. The interesting thing that I got wrong about Cadbury was a long time ago, I wrote, when they started out with this generosity platform, I made the point that at the time Mondelez wasn't paying, it was paying a legally correct, relatively small amount of tax in this country. Mm-hmm. Cadbury wasn't paying any tax on its profits. And I wrote a very worthy, entirely incorrect column saying this doesn't work because you can't be claiming you're generous but not paying any tax at Cadbury. The, 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 you know, the Quaker brothers would be ashamed of you. And I missed the point, the, the classic point of market orientation. Mm. Your mum doesn't understand <laughs> corporate tax, but she cries when the garage ad comes on. And I got a lot of yeah. flack from people saying, yeah, but they're not doing tax and all that. And I said, I know, I used to think that too, but the point is I'm not a tax expert. I would prefer it if they paid more tax. But I'm a, a marketing expert, and this is great marketing, including the fact that nobody cares about the corporate tax point. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I totally, I totally agree. That that, that it, it's a it's a weird. I had, the, I had the same reaction. I think I commented very similarly actually on on that point. Um, a little side point actually. What do you, what do you think the third most effective ad on our database this year is? So take me through one and two. So Cadbury was one. Cadbury's number one. Number two, actually, interestingly, is British Bake Off. Oh um, really? Yeah, British Bake Off done the number two. Yeah, okay, and number, I'm three? number three. It's a bit of a trick question. I'll tell you the answer. Mm. The 20 second cut down version of that ad. Wow. Yeah. They've got one and three. They've got one and three. Impressive. And also, wow. they, they've also, there's a six second activation ad that is also in the top 10. So, it, back to your campaign point, actually. So it runs across it, different it, formats. It runs formats, time lengths. Media. Yeah, media. Countries. Yeah, so got dig, to digital. Yeah, exactly. Dig, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, we've got it in Australia, so. dubbed into Australian. Yeah? The first time I saw Garage was in Australia. It had the same emotional effect, and they're dubbed into Oz. And the woman says, oh, it's a Cadbury campaign. And I'm like, hang on, that gas station doesn't look like an Aussie servo, as we called them. And I'm like, I bet you that's dubbed. And you couldn't tell, but it had the Ooh, same punch impressive. and everything. Impressive. No, no, no. I mean, that's yeah. your point. The campaign ability yeah. goes across go, yeah. media, across yeah. countries, across products, across time. And that's when you that's when you win, isn't it? Well, and it links to your wear out data. So, oh, I've got a question for you. Actually, mm-hmm. Before we jump in on this mm-hmm. one, because um, I asked Ollie at VCCP, knowing you're going to come in, knowing we're going to talk about this, to put in some questions, right? So Ollie asked this question, actually. So this is, he said, um, firstly, he said, we love you, Mark. So anyway, you guys, that's nice. Um, Thanks, and then he went on uh, to say, uh, you've talked before about the importance of longevity, saying that wear out is a problem for marketers. How should a brand owner sell in within the organization the idea of doubling down versus changing something? Well, I mean, I think they won't <laughs> because they don't want to. I, I don't think the enemy is the rest of the organization. I don't mm. buy this, right? Totally agree. You know, the CFO isn't saying, where's our new ad campaign, Right. It's the marketer that's doing that's it. That's it. The yeah, marketers. Yeah. I mean, I get this a lot at the moment. I'm trying to tighten up everyone's positioning. And I'm saying, you, you know, you've got these eight slides. You should have one word or two words, whatever. 
And the the only pushback I get, and I get it a lot, is but it's very hard to sell that in to the rest of the company. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You're just finding excuses now, right? The problem with wear out and the problem with convincing a client team to not do a new campaign is they want to do a new campaign because hmm. they're a bit pathetic. And what would they do otherwise? You know, well, I would suggest the other 92% of marketing might be a start, <laughs> but they want to do more ads because that's yeah. what they got in the game, right? So. Yeah, I think that the challenge is convincing marketers and the way – it's the missing piece right now. It's interesting, a festival of marketing. We were saying earlier, right, that the corpus of advertising effectiveness isn't just clear now. Everybody knows it. It's really good, right? The missing additional piece is your new stuff, which you guys did start on where out may not be real. Yeah. At least – yeah. <laughs> outside of marketing departments, <laughs> yeah. right? Because when you first sent me the data, I was like, yeah, I'm not convinced. You've measured this, but not that. And then you measured that as well. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? Then analytic partners had that data as well. Well, I mean, we, we, we've tried to, uh, generally we've tried to cut it as many ways no, as we I've can. No, I've seen your work. I mean, you've looked, it, you've looked for changes. We've tried to disprove it mm. internally, actually, and gone like, you know, look at ad length, look at spend, look at theme, look at... The only, the only examples of wear out we could find is... Obviously, if you do like a World Cup promotion, let's say, and, you know, it's the World Cup, it's going to do slightly better than two years later when the World Cup's not on. So, But not, from but, what you showed me, not that different. No, not, <laughs> even then, even then, right? Even no. then, it's not that different. But the crazy thing is, if you take those out, everything else actually improves. Familiarity breeds, as we often say, contentment rather than contempt. No, no, I, I, I think it's a big addition. I'll give you an example of why. So I, I, I work a little bit with Tourism Australia. It's a very big thing for Australia because Susan Coghill is a wonderful CMO. Yeah, she's got a $100 million budget, but literally her work drives billions of dollars or not into the, into the country's income. It's, Australia's a much smaller country than the UK, and tourism is much more important, right? Yeah. So it's a real big job. And Susan got this early because Susan's a great student. I, I always say this, and I feel like I'm doing Susan a big disservice. I said it yesterday. I said, Susan's not the smartest marketer around. And that sounds like I'm hinting that she's thick. Do you know what I mean? I don't mean it that way. I mean, Susan's the first one to go. I'm not 180 IQ marketer doing innovative new stuff. She's a very smart woman. Student, Susan is a student of the game. Yeah. And, and some, some marketers are. But she has learned it and is just doing it. Again, without any flash or... And it just works, you know? So one of the things she picked up on, partly because she works with you guys, was this wear-out thing isn't happening. So what she did with her budget was go, right, in year one, I'm going to go and spend money on a proper campaign. I got a nine-minute video. I got a cinema opening. I got Will Arnett. You know what I mean? I'm going to fucking spank it out there. You know what I mean? And she did that because A, creative is important, yeah. but B, she knows she can run that campaign for three, four, five, six years. And of course, what it means is big, flashy creative. And then for the next four or five years, the 20 points of her, of her budget, which would have gone to another new creative, goes on media. Goes on go. media. There's your 20 Bingo. extra points there right there, go. which is probably yeah. your excess share That's of voice that you excess need. Excess share of voice done. It's a huge yeah. point, right? It's yeah. a huge point. I've got all these CMOs around the world trying to bend the rules of excess share of voice. If we use attention theory, yeah. and if we use codification, and blah, blah, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll beat, we the, we'll beat the laws yeah, of gravity. Yeah, yeah. No, you won't, yeah. right? But if you understand wear out, and if you yeah. build a good campaign, you maintain it for five or six years, there's your excess share of voice yeah. right there combined with great creative. Yeah. That, I mean, sorry for saying this, that's a very huge point. Yeah. That if you're in charge of your budget, you should get. Yeah. But you have to have the discipline to say, "All right, we don't need a new ad campaign." You say right, I, I, Susan. I mean, in fact, Susan in, the, in this in this building actually, she she came to me on a trip and said, "I've got a real problem. I don't know how to sell this in." And she said, our, our, "This is early stage testing, right? So so we test stuff right when it's a script or very early on." She goes, "It's only a four star." I'm like, Susan, if you get a four star at the beginning of your process, you yeah. are cast iron, guaranteed yeah. gold. I mean, you're there. You're honestly, you're there. I mean, we, we can we can finesse it and get you there, but honestly, you are there. But it was, but she was using the data very scientifically. The other thing she said is, well, you know, she tested it in 15 markets and only 12 have got a five star. Yeah. You know, it's like, I mean, like th 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 this is like steady luxury on. problems. You know what I mean? It's yeah, like, yeah, no, it's important. I mean, even the statistical variation across 15 different tests would give you a, 
one or two that wouldn't no, be no, right. But, you know I mean, mean? But, the problem but, is we focus on the Cadburys, right? I know. So she's exactly. like, that one, 5.9. Yeah, 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 exactly. She was there. But imagine, like, you're getting a creative that worked across all those different cultures and different contexts and different understanding of Australia and all, all that kind of thing. I mean, that's really, really impressive. But you're yeah. right, but she was going by the data and making, you know. She's a great, she's a truly great marketer. It's funny, you know, I work with the company. It's a good company that has the license for John West Tuna in Australia. And I tried and I think failed to get the, uh, you know, the fisherman yes, fight in the grizzly yes, bear. Yes, I'm like, make, data on that make, well, it, yeah. make it again. Yeah, yeah. And they were like, I'm going to just use it again. You own the brand. Yeah, yeah. The ad will be available or refilm the ad. Yeah. It will destroy every – most yeah. people don't just know the Just put it back ad. on air, right? It's funny. It's obviously Salmon. It's obviously John West. Done. Like, easy. We're done, right? Yeah. The only thing I saw, and it was briefly yesterday, is Vuitton started a campaign – I think it's Vuitton – with um, Twiggy. Twiggy made an ad for Louis Vuitton, and it's an ad I know. It must be like sort of 64, 65 – with a little baton bag, which are these very small, like, pochette bags, you know, mm. from the 60s. And she's kind of holding it, and Twiggy's being beautiful in 60s and everything. And they just replicated it 50 years later. Same bag, same jewellery, same pose, same everything. I thought that was very, very nice. That's nice. Because it does speak to Vuitton's quality, it which does. is... If you, Timeless if, if, if well, you And yeah. if you really own Vuitton's stuff... Yeah. It gets banged around a bit, yeah. but I've bought Vuitton stuff for some of my business colleagues over the years, especially when I was working for Louis Vuitton, and they still go on about the fact that they've had this bag off me for 15 years and it's still brand new. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It is mm. a special thing, you know. Mm. So there may be a little movement back towards it, but I think that the end of wear out, at least among the market, is an interesting one. My question for you, John, though, is what's the balance between just literally running the same ad? or it being a variation on a theme. So in Cadbury's case, they have yeah. this platform, right? Yeah. They could have just kept running. Yeah. When we look at the data, Gorilla Forever, right? Yeah. So is there, a, is there anything in the data that tells you we what got, to do? We've got cases on both, right? So uh, take Christmas, right? Christmas just gives us a good opportunity to look at this because most people change at Christmas. You've got uh, Coke Holidays Are Coming, which has run for 25 years, effectively the same ad, and it's gradually got, got better, but probably plateaued at around 5.0 star. Kevin the Carrot uh, campaign started at a 3.6, I think, went up to 5, and it's now got to 5.9. So actually what they've done is, really interestingly, and that, I mean, th these guys are literally textbooks. So uh, they say they have one month off a year. It's December, right? Because that's when, that's when it's made and it's, you can't change it. From January, they're starting on next Christmas. But they test, they, they immediately start with the next version of Kevin, which is new, but what they do is they bring in what kind of news stories, what cultural changes, yeah, what voiceover. Yeah. And what they do is they test every little element with us, right? So they'll go, Jim Broadbent voiceover, does that work or not? Did Dipper get the Marcus Rashford joke, you know, um, which scenes are working, not working? So it'd be a fresh idea. But what they've done is actually, I call it the Coke Truck Index, right? Coke Truck is like the old McDonald's kind of burger oh, index. You know what I mean? Exactly, oh, right? That's the benchmark, right? But what they've shown is actually evolving a creative idea uh, consistently over time, they've now had two years ahead of you beat the trucks. Truck. They beat the trucks for last year. Well, and it also future proofs it, right? So at some point, it does yeah. get vintage yeah. and old. Not if you keep adapting each year. So exactly. it does mean campaignability is the right answer. Yeah, I mean it's a long bet, right? And it'll outsee us all. But if Cadbury are as smart as I think they are, this is a fifty-year campaign. Right? I mean, I use Kit Kat as my example at festival. Like, I had to find an example of a brand that is properly simply positioned on one or two attributes, differentiated, therefore mm. relatively, but also was distinctive in its assets and codes. And KitKat, if you go, it's 50 years of it, take a break, for, yeah. you know, take a, take a KitKat, be refreshed, that's it. Yeah. There's nothing else, yeah. right? And then you got the red, you got the twigs, yeah. you got the snap, and, and you're yeah. there. And yeah, then yeah. you go back for the work and yeah. it's there for 50 it's years. There, yeah. That's a campaignability that yeah. just keeps... Well, let, me, let me ask you now, what, why, why did difference versus distinctiveness suddenly become the biggest conversation we were having earlier? Oh, I year? made it the biggest. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, say. I did, I did. Yeah. No, so, so there's two parts to this. Again, I'm going to go on my Ehrenberg Bass train for a minute here. I love Ehrenberg Bass. There's always a sprinkle of extra syrup in their science, in my opinion. They go about 30% too far. When they brought distinctiveness into the marketing mindset, it is, it is the great discovery of modern marketing because it didn't exist before, right? Mm -hmm. It isn't like a new name for something. They properly found this out. 
And it's the most important fucking thing, right? Yeah. It's amazing, yeah. right? It's amazing. Yeah. Mass marketing and getting that legit again, that was kind of a change of, that was going back some, to something else. Still an amazing achievement. But calling it distinctiveness, looking at distinctive assets, tying them into category entry points and bringing it to mind, the importance mm -hmm. of set is a fucking amazing thing. But they just couldn't help themselves and they had to go too far. <laughs> and they're... Their white suits have a little bit of extra sparkle there. Do you know what I mean? So they did it. If you look at the, the Red Book, they did it. Distinctiveness is the new differentiation. And again, they sort of caveat with differentiation is possible, but only in a basic way. But in the book, there's a table that says old past worldview, yeah. positioning and differentiation, new worldview, distinctiveness, right? And so marketers gradually read the book and gradually fell in love with A, distinctiveness, but also this stupid differentiation is not possible. Mm. We've disproved it, right? And they all, and it's not Ehrenberg Bass's fault. It's the, it's the sort of second tier disciplines, disciples, sorry, who who sort of trot it all out but don't really understand it and just go all over the shop, right? You get, there's no such thing as different. We've disproved differentiation. And I'm like, at the most face valid point of view, that's clearly horseshit. I always use like a Dell laptop and an Apple laptop. Do you really think, do you really think that these two are perceived to be the same? Yeah. So I was on a mission for a while and I couldn't think, I couldn't work through it. And in the end, it comes down to one simple mistake that even Michael Porter makes. And it's that everyone tied differentiation to unique all the way back. Go back to 10, uh, you know, the Ted Bates agency and Rosser Reeves. The USP, the U, yeah. was unique. Yes. You find yeah. a unique thing. Yeah. Michael Border comes in and says, if you go down a differentiation strategy path, you find something unique which drives price premium. Mm. Yeah, That's not true. Mm. It's simply not true. And yet in our lexicon, differentiation became finding something unique. The minute you take unique out and you think, well, maybe it's not unique. And I use the example of height. I'm taller than you by a foot, right? By a foot, by an inch. You're not a midget, right? And I'm different from you as a result. It's not that I've invented height. Yeah. It's not that you don't have height. You know, it's that I've relatively more of it than you. Yeah. And the minute you get that, it changes everything. Because what it says is differentiation is not guaranteed for most brands. It may not exist for most brands. But relative differentiation is possible if you choose very carefully those points. So I've been on a mission this year to try and balance it out, but apply bothism so that I'm not going to be this childish idiot, you know, part of the marketing debate. Just differentiation means distinctiveness. No, it doesn't. Distinctiveness <laughs> means, come on, right? Back to the back idea. Back to the whole two, two truths two, in one. Two ideas, yeah, two right? ideas together. Brands can, yeah. back to Kit Kat, be positioned tightly on a couple of relative points. If you want a quick break, category entry point. Yeah. You know, refreshment, quick break, Kit Kat, right? We're going to try and own, though, not own, yeah. but we're going to have a relative association for those things in the mind of the I market. I think the point to build as well is that where marketers have gone wrong is the height difference matters in certain contexts, right? And that's where people lose it because they go, ah, we're slightly higher. But if the consumer doesn't give a shit about being slightly higher, like, what's the point? And, you know, it's, it, we end up having these arms race, you know, trying to get to a point of difference that actually isn't relevant. No, no. And, so, we end, and it's turned into this esoteric nonsense where brands literally have 12 slides for positioning. Yeah. The words that they're putting in the positioning are ridiculous. You know, the champion of truth and families and all this rubbish. And what we have to do, and so that the addendum to this whole, can you be differentiated in theory? Yes, relatively. But if you want it as a brand, and most brands are never going to get it because they're so shit at positioning, you have to completely strip back how you're doing positioning. Mm. In my opinion, to a single page, which is these are the three things we want to position as. There might be some hygiene things in there as well, but these are the three things we choose to aim to have relative advantages over the yeah. competitor brands. Yeah. And then next to it, here's my distinctive brand assets. Yeah. That's how we're going to drive our distinctiveness. Yeah. And with this, we will go to war, right? That, as you know better than me, that is so far from how big brands currently yeah. wank it all out there with 800 slides <laughs> and complex words and a parallelogram and a fucking keyhole. That isn't just not working. It actually works against these brands getting any form of differentiation. And totally. the last point I'd make is not only do I still think distinctiveness is important, I think in most cases it's probably still more important yeah. But it's interesting, a lot of the data now suggests 
for younger, newer brands or with younger, newer customers, it's still differentiation that drives it more. And as things mature, it becomes distinctive. Well, that makes sense because you need to lock into the memory structures you've established already. Get into you're trial, triggering, get you're triggering those purchases. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, yeah, it makes loads of sense. That. So that's the war. But I'm getting loads of delightful flack at the moment because everyone's like, you know, oh, this tiresome debate about differentiation and distinctness. Why are we talking about this again? It's because we talked about it wrongly. Mm. And I, I, yes, I fully admit that I have singularly attempted to reignite the discussion so we could right an old wrong. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. And we'll see if it works. Someone says, I mean, I'm interesting this week. They said, we're re- the clients are ready for this. Yeah. They, they've been doing it anyway, but they sort of feel like, well, I can talk a little bit about my positioning, my differentiation. And I think that's true, mm. right? That's no, good. Yeah, really, really good. Really good. Uh, qu- next question from Ollie, actually. Uh, you sent me a few. But um, on Cadbury, we don't show the products being eaten yes. or even unwrapped um, at, in order to make the story feel authentic. Uh, is authenticity relevant to marketers? Uh, or is authenticity overrated? No, no. I, I think I, I would I would draw a slightly wider net that the, than Orlando's doing there. I think you're right. They don't show someone in that particular ad eating the chocolate. Mm. But what that ad is is the the purchase act, the giving act. The product itself is central, literally in the center of the dyad of the ad. Right. Yeah. I don't think you have to consume it. I think it has to be woven into the narrative and then it's authentic, yeah. right? It doesn't need to be the consumption act. It needs to be right in the middle. You know, the old yeah. bad ads yeah. where they'd be like, you know, a 30 second mystery story and right at the end, of it, and it was Lil. And it was you us. Know, oh, yeah. it was, well, who knew that? <laughs> See ya. You know, I've just put on my budget. <laughs> Woohoo, surprise. Forget about me now. So I think that's where the authenticity comes yeah. from. It's, it's run yeah. right through, right? And yeah. if you actually, once you see Garage once, you realize. Literally, the bar of Cadbury is there yeah. for the whole ad. Oh, it's there. Yeah. I mean? she's, she's almost feeling the packaging at one you got point, it. isn't you she? Got you got it. The, it's, it's the sensory bit of it is amazing. I mean, actually, Orlando, to uh, quote him, actually, his left and right brain features really mm. help understand this because there's so much more power in implicit communication. You don't have to make it, I mean, he would call it like flat and abstract where you just put the, you know, yes. put it right in front of your eyes kind of thing. You know, we, our right brains can detect things and pick things up. And I mean, the other thing, of course, is, is fluent, but spec savers being a good example. If you start owning an idea, people start to recognize the idea playing out even before you've shown the product. And my point, which Orlando's made much better than me, is when you join those dots cognitively yourself, yeah, the impact is significantly more powerful. Yeah than it being presented to you later, right? Totally, yeah. And so you, with, it's a risky game, but if you can have that synapse that yeah. you have to close, he, yeah. you know what I mean? If He's you, got a beautiful quote about this, which I can't remember, but it's something about leaving a bit of work for the audience right, actually right. enables it to be remembered. That's right, and the yeah. memorability and the power of it suddenly goes through yeah. the roof. I think that's the whole point about playing with codes, which for me is a super important part of distinctive assets. When you play with them and people have to join the dots to go, hang on, the Carlsberg is red, right? Mm. It makes it more green in your mind. Totally. You know what I mean? 100%, totally. Um, is, uh, we've covered actually one of his questions, but the, the final question he asked is, uh, you kindly pointed out the Capri turnaround was inspired by going back to the brand's astonishing history mm. to find answers to the future. Do marketers use a brand's history enough? Mm. And if they don't, how might we change it? That's a real great question. So I was trained by Americans, right? So I was in America for brand management not at its genesis, because that goes back to P&G, but the, the David Arker, Kevin Keller era, when I grew up, late 80s, early 90s, was absolutely empirical, right? You do research on the brand in order to understand the brand, right, from its consumers. And then in the second phase of my career, I go off to LVMH in Paris, and I get a complete French beating, right? The French aren't even that empirical when it comes to brands, right? They go straight to history. They go back to the or- literally the origins of the brand, the founder. When I did all the work on Dom Perignon, we stood at his grave. We stayed in Annie Air. We started there, right? And those two, I call them eyes, right? The French eye and the American eye. If you put them together, you pr- and when I train, when I do the mini MBA brand management, when we do the modules on brand research, it, it's half about the heritage of the brand. Yeah. And it's half about then a decent bit of qual and quant research on the current brand, a little bit of loyalty research, and you put it all together. So Orlando's right. You you can't manage a brand if you don't know where it's come from. Yeah. Yeah? And that sounds like a bunch of French wank, but in, in history, 
you will get so many. I mean, there's a belief in marketing that whoever was managing the brand 100 years ago was somehow like an idiot, right? They were just as smart as us. And they probably came up with equally, if not better, ideas. Yeah. Why wouldn't you look into the archive yeah. a little bit? When I worked on Hennessy, it's a great story. When I worked on Hennessy, um, the CEO, Bernard Payon, is a brilliant CEO. I had this, we had this strategy for a little while. So Hennessy lost the patent on XO about, I think it was about 200 years ago, right? Some idiot in the 19th century forgot to renew the fact. We, we created XO, right? X, extra, wow. so yeah. I should explain yeah, to everyone. Yeah. So... Uh, Hennessy is, is the cognac. It's made from a blend of different wine and extra old XO was a very special sub-brand of Hennessy. Mm. Someone forgot to renew the patent and now we have what we have today, which is every cognac has an extra old one. Tequilas have extra old ones. Chinese restaurants have extra old ones and, and Hennessy created it. So my idea to Mr. Payon at one point was, because Hennessy's a very, uh, comes from a family of assassins, it's tough and all that. I said, let's go and sue every company that's used XO. And he's like, but we, we can't win the case. I'm like, I know, but if we can get on the front page of the Wall Street Journal with the court case, everyone will learn the story that yeah. they've forgotten yeah. that we invented yeah. XO. And he said, man, he's like, go, go to the archive then and see if we've got a strong enough case, yeah. just to prove that we did, right? So I, Hennessy has a library, has an archive. And so we go and we dig through it all, right? And I have to find the manifests showing that there was before a certain point it was like you know 1800 that we were we had an xo so we went to the ship manifest they're there it's actually to london from cognac and there it is big line saying eight barrels of hennessy xo wow. to be shipped to such and such on the strand and then in this incredible electric moment underneath it there's a second line that says also 12 crates of hennessy xxo Ooh. XO wasn't the first invention. There's a sub-brand that we forgot about. It An started XXO. XL. Wow. So I took that, and, and, <laughs> and he was, and because Hennessy man for all these years, and he's like, hmm. <laughs> and about two years later, there's a gap in the portfolio in travel retail yeah. between Paradise there and XO, go. and X XXO, XXO came the one. And Mr. Payne sent me, a, he sent me a bottle That's with a lovely note. a few note. quid. <laughs> And, you know, it's got nothing to do with me, really. Yeah, yeah. But I have a letter from the CEO of Hennessy saying, well, yeah, that's a you know, it. it's, And it's lovely because history sometimes yeah. teaches us we've, things we've I, I don't kind of similar stories, actually. So I was working on LucasAid when the sugar tax came into the UK. And mm. we, had, we were forced to reformulate because of the government regulations to bring down mm. like the amount of sugar use. And... Um, we were thinking, how, how, how do we tackle this and, and so on? And we actually went, went back to the history archives in the factory and looked at the original recipe for glucosate. So, I mean, I'll, I'll do the round numbers, but let's say there were 40 grams of glucose and we're having to go down to 20, right? Yeah. That, that's rough numbers, something like that. And um, anyway, one of the team came back really, really excited and said, I've just been through the archives. And glucosate was invented because what was happening is back in the 20s, uh, a, a surgeon was worried because uh, kids were dying, not in operations, but they didn't recover from the operation. So they'd be having an operation, and then in the, in the sensitive time afterwards where you're trying to get your yeah, strength yeah. back, they literally weren't surviving that bit. Not, forget the operation. And he invented this kind of mix of glucose as a way of kind of getting energy back into the body yeah, to help super with recovery. Important. So it was an incredibly powerful um, thing. But we actually found the original recipe, before it became a commercial drink, the actual recipe... And it was 20 grams of glucose. Was, was he had worked all his experiments. Was, that's the amount that was enough to get the body going without overloading it with sugar and all this sort of thing. So weirdly, although we, we never intended to get you into this. You were back to where you the, started. We were actually back to where we started with this original story about the optimum amount of glucose to help you recover you know, from a it's, situation. It's, ma it's magic because you do have that Indiana Jones feeling for a few seconds where you know, we found um, uh, the founder of Krug, Mr. Krug, I forget his name, maybe Thomas, don't quote me, Mr. Krug's original diary, which he left to his son about how to run the winery at the vineyard, sorry, yeah. not me Australian hound. And because it was a, it was a German, originally a German family, it was much more clear and laid out and didactic. And it was kind of a manual. And the best bit about it was we were struggling with, the, with what should be the, you know, every luxury brand is gold if they don't know their history, you know. And it was this beautiful dark cherry uh, handbook and at one point he refers to it as his favorite color like, and there we go there you are and, and so you have this lovely electric moment don't yeah. you where you're like and i've had it with live founders had it with donna karen 
Donna Karen, by the time I worked with her, would have been 60. Yeah. And she would have founded that house in her late 20s. And so we were going through some of the archive photographs, and she got quite upset because she was remembering things mm. that she – she's a billionaire now, yeah. right? But when she set it up, she had yeah. no money. She was – so why did you do this, Donna? Oh, I don't know. Oh, yeah, that's why, because of Stephen, yeah. her you know, yeah. husband at the time. And so even living founders forget mm. this stuff. Yeah. So I think in, in the history, particularly in the first few, I, I always say when we do a diagnosis, the first five to 10 years of a brand's life are often these electric mm. sparks. And it's, I tell you what it is, John, and don't get me started on this, I'll talk all day. It's constraints and accidents become the strategy. Like in Sephora's case, you know, Sephora, when it was acquired by LVMH, all the other beauty brands, the big ones, didn't want to supply them anymore because they're like, well, it's, you know, Chanel's not going to supply LVMH, you know what I mean? And suddenly they had empty shelves, right? And so Sephora had to go out and find all these hot, cool, independent brands yeah. to fill the shelves. It became it became one of That's Sephora's so often, greatest. So many. Whenever you read the stories about how the brands became, it so often is a constraint, isn't it, or a, an issue, or an accident, or that a drives, that the, drives great the innovation success. that turns out to be no, no, it's true. Madame Clico yeah. went to Russia. Yeah in order to find a market that when everything was depressed, you know, Dom Perignon invented champagne because the Pinot and the Chardonnay on their own weren't good. In those, I mean, it's a very American thing. In the toughest moment you find yourself, yeah. but often also a path totally. to glory. It, totally. And I think you almost want to engineer that. But it's, it's the first five years of a brand's history, yeah. maybe 10, where those sparky moments happen. And you can lose that, can't you, if it becomes too corporate and you, you lose that. Yeah, definitely. When you start strategizing too early, people say to me, like, we're gonna, we founded a brand do we do brand strategy from the start? I'm like, no, let it percolate. Mm. It's like having a kid, right? For the first four or five years, they're, they're basically just, you know, things in, in the world. It's only around six or seven you can see this thing has been formed. Yeah. Now you get to know what it properly is, you know? But that historical research, to Orlando's point, uh, the French eye combined with the American eye. Because the other thing is, if you get too much of that French stuff, it turns into hoo-ha, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. I've worked with French, brand, French branding experts, yeah. right? It's a long fucking afternoon. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? They're full of shit, right? Yeah. But I've also worked with very rational American market researchers, and they don't fucking get it, right? If I can have some French magic driven by the history, and I can have some American rational, good old-fashioned quant data, boom, there we are. we're going to be all right. Cooking you know what I mean? And, and I think that's a great, it's a, one of my lessons, it's a great lesson for how to do diagnosis. Yeah. And you can see yeah. on my mini MBA brand management, it's basically, let's talk about history, because yep. you find the codes yep. as well. You, know, you do, yeah, there, yeah, right? yeah. The great ads of the past, you yeah. know? All there. But all let's there. also build a questionnaire. Love it. So big thank you to Ollie from VCCP. Yeah, good for, questions, for, Ollie. For Set questions. me up there. Well worked. Um, I thought I'd end with uh, uh, 10 really quick quick fire questions for you, just, just to get, okay. as if you weren't on your toes anyway. <laughs> I thought that's I mean, all that. Right, just done there. Go on. Exactly. Go on. All right. Um, how tricky was the Bud Light article to write? I only wrote it because so many people said they were waiting for me to write it. Yeah. And normally you get a bit of that, and that's a signal not to write it, because you're like, if they expect me to do it, I'm not going to do it. But there were so many people, I'm like, you know what? I'm actually going to have to write this, right? Yeah. So then it was easy to write. Yeah. Uh, what to say? And it links to that point that America, the main conclusion for me is Bud is trying to do mass marketing, and you can't do mass marketing in America because the society is broken yeah. down the middle. Yeah, yeah, very good. Uh, was the Twitter rebrand to X the biggest mistake of this year? Yeah. Which market is gonna has suffered most in this 2023? Do you think UK? I mean, you've got you've got to pause on that one, right? Yeah. Last October, I mean, I, I'm British. I carry a British passport. I'm having to live in Australia, but I'm very proudly British. Um, it was very hard for me to come back here. Liz Truss had done. I'm not political, but Liz Truss was clearly a moron. Mm. The Queen had died. I'm not a royalist, but that was you know sad. It was a passing. The economy was down. COVID was still fucking things up. There was a massive recession. The pound was all over the place. Heathrow was run by fucking idiots. Every time I went through Heathrow, it was like, who is, you know. Where's your baggage? Yeah. What, what is this? Yeah, you yeah. know what I mean? What is this line? How can you yeah. show our country like this, you mm. know? And two people were staffing it with mobile phones. They were both like 12, you know what I mean? <laughs> so it was really hard to come back and see all that. And I think what well, all that's happened this year is the rest of the world has caught up with how shit it all is. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I definitely don't bet against Britain, but we need, we need a... Need a bounce. Yeah. We need something, right? Mm. We really need something. And um, I'm looking for what – it will come. Mm. It might come from a World Cup. But we need – not cricket because nobody really fucking cares. Um, we need something. We yeah. need something. We do. We do. Um, what's the biggest skill that marketers don't have? 
managing up and across. Mm, we talked nice. about this. Um, we're doing this mini MBA in management, yeah. quick yeah. plug. And so we have 10 professors. The, the, the 10 courses you do on an MBA apart from marketing. Yeah. Um, one of the interesting ones, Yale, who teaches sort of, you know, managing organizations, the thing that, and I'm doing it as a student, but the thing that I can see marketers most loving in the course from all the things we've got, like Roger Minder strategy and yeah. accounting and finance, is how she captures managing your boss and managing those across from you that aren't your, your, your reports. Mm. I just don't think we have any clue That's about that. That's such a It doesn't matter how good your plan is if you can't get it Mate, signed off. And the key point is you can be fully trained in this. Yeah. Like accounting, right? That's what I realised a few years ago when I was at Britvic, actually, is that you can you should have a plan of, like, who's going to decide, what influence do they have, what position are they for or against this thing, what am I going to do, how am I going to address their concerns? You know, it, it can be a lot more logical than uh, it, it, maybe it's, it it's one of the mind-boggling things about... I mean, it shouldn't be mind-boggling, but you sit in these... We have each class is about two hours, and they are the best professors in the topics, right? The professor that does Barry, does, does negotiations... In two hours, it changes everything forever. Mm. You just go, to your point, there's a way of doing this. Oh, mm. fuck, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? And I think that's, that's astonishing. But managing yeah. up and across yeah. is the one that I think Definitely. we have to do. Definitely, big, big, big skill. Um, does having a mini MBA reduce your chance of getting fired? I don't know. Um, it definitely increases your chances of being hired. Okay. And we definitely don't talk about it because about half of our candidates are sponsored by their companies, so we don't talk about it in the brochure for obvious reasons. Yeah. I can tell you, though, and again, I don't know if this is good or bad, literally, I was talking to a guy about it last night. He'd just been for, so we did an event last night for, for the Marketing Academy charity, and we gave away a place on the mini-MBA for the best question of the night, and the, one of the guys said, I was, I've just been fired today. What do I do? Blah blah blah. And I said, "Look, mate, whatever the fucking question is, you're gonna, you're <laughs> you gonna get the win, price. you know." <laughs> and then I talked to him afterwards over a beer, and I said to him, "Do the brand management course hmm. because there are hundreds of brand management <laughs> jobs, and the minute you do the mini MBA in brand management, everyone that's ever done the course gets every job they ever apply yeah. for because you're like, yeah, there's ten you candidates. Out, yeah. I'm trained. Yeah. I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. Exactly. Whether they get, f yeah, whether they, I don't know. I cannot, I've no, I have no data on that. The reverse one. probably is true. But we'll, <laughs> Maybe. We'll just go with let's pro assume, pro let's probably, assume. Probably, let's assume, yeah, yeah. probably. The, the odds are with you. Um, what new marketing BS is going to be added to your list but come the end of this year? I'm not much taken with full funnel marketing. I think it's good in principle, but it ends up being target everything all the time, mm -hmm. which is the opposite of strategy. I think we've interpreted it badly. That's the one I worry mm. about the most. Okay, okay. Are we already past peak AI? I saw something in New York last week that should scare the fuck out of everyone. Yeah. So you can, I don't want to go into too much detail because I'm not <laughs> allowed to. You can put your, they put my company name into a box. They gave me excess share of voice, distinctive brand assets, uh, correct uh, media mix, Key segments, Ooh. category entry points, holy smoke! Price optimization, yeah, in the keystroke. And I sat there and I looked at some of it and I said, "Have you got any triangulation?" There's a couple of there's a couple of sales guys in the room, mm -hmm. and there's a couple of smart boys further in the back that did it. So I just ignored the two sales boys and I looked at the sort of spooky looking guy in the back. I said, "Have you got any triangulation data or any of this shit?" And he's like, "Yeah, yeah there's a couple of points we can show you, so they can show you a legitimate empirical data point." Versus what their program has just pulled and scraped. Yeah? Yeah, 91, 92%. So Ooh. I think media planning as a pursuit is over. Yeah. I think econometrics as a separate entity is over. But it won't happen overnight. Chat GPT mm. is like a little fucking toy in the corner. It is, it is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. There's another deeper bunch of spooks yeah. building shit that we as yet find difficult to understand. System one's place in this is you have a primary data set mm. which you need to protect, yes. <laughs> which would make the AI smarter. Exactly. But as you've already worked out, John, once it starts to escape yeah. in a presentation, in a report, yeah. Yeah. the pigeons it's feeding, are loose. It's feeding the world. Yeah, it's true. I think there's a time coming where, like, look at excess share of voice. Everybody wants it. Very few people have it. This system is already able to basically produce it in two seconds. Right, And then think about this. Once you have all that panoply of data, the AI algorithm can then maximize within those things 
to then do your Monte Carlo yeah. analysis yeah. and spit out, yeah. these are the three things you should do. Yeah, yeah. So I think whoever nails that, and it will take someone with real skill and marketing knowledge, possibly... That's the key thing, isn't it? That's the yeah. key. Yeah, well, the good yeah. news is the market, yeah. only the marketers can do this. There's a bunch yeah. of spooks from you know, Bain, they'll have a go at it, but they'll get it wrong. Yeah. But I think it will change the... F yeah, we're, we're yeah. nowhere near peak. So Bill Gates is right. For the next three years, it will disappear. But unlike other things, it will come back. Okay, yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Well, final question. I think you've already referenced it anyway, but uh, Marketing MBA has now extended. What new uh, courses are there that we can look forward to? Well, thanks for that intro, John. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, we've always done the mini MBA in marketing. We've always done the mini MBA in brand management, and they continue to be very successful. We, we wanted an extra course for people who'd done those courses. Uh, and the ambition was, can we, the point of mini MBA was we took my marketing course from business school, turned it into a 10 week course. Could we go out and get the 10 best professors from the 10 best business schools to each teach a, a, a two hour masterclass in each of the management subjects, finance, marketing, negotiation, strategy, et cetera. And so we hunted them down over two years, incredibly long-winded contractual negotiations, um, then briefing and then filming and teaching them how to do it. It's interesting when someone comes in from the, from the business school world, they teach, they look at the camera as if they're talking to 100 people and you have to always say to them, it's just one person there. Yeah. Think about it that way, try yeah. again. Yeah. Um, and we got, I think we're running it right now, we're testing it with uh, 300 marketers. I think we have something very special no one has time to spend two fucking years of business school, six hours yeah. a day in a windowless room. Yeah. We don't, and we're old yeah, fucks, right? Exactly, yeah. You look at these kids now who are yeah. 19, right? How are we going to get them into a room yeah. for four hours in the morning, two hours in the afternoon, five days a week? Yeah. Get out of there it, right? So what we're trying to do is not replace the MBA. It will die on its own mm. merits. But to create for busy marketers this is definitely not as good as going to Harvard, right? But it's, it's, ten, it's 10 weeks and it's two hours a week long and it's good. Yeah. And you can learn negotiations, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I'm pretty bullish about it. Uh, it's what I wanted to do. I, I'm not really involved in it as much in the sense that I'm not teaching as much. I help pick the professors. So we'll see. But I'm excited. I feel everyone that I talk to about it wants to do it, which I always think is a good yeah. sign. Right? <laughs> like, when's that launching that thing? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So I hope it's going to be, we'll sell it as the sort of the second course. Yeah. Come and do marketing. And then. Now you understand it. Let's do this. I think it's the it's the one. And then I'm redoing the MBA, mini MBA marketing completely because some of the things, differentiation, mass marketing have changed a lot. And I think it's time not just to update material, but to completely restructure the narrative of these sections because marketing has changed a bit, yeah. right? So we're on that we're on that platform too. But, you know, we go from strength to strength. We're in 40 countries. It's great. It's a great business. Amazing. Well, well done. Congratulations. Thanks, man. And and well done again on being the Gary V of Australia. It's something I really you, take you seriously. Pick. Yeah. And it will only be complete for me when someone, and I mean, I'm speaking to you, listener, confronts Gary V at one of his religious style conferences and says, "Gary, we love you. You're like the Mark Ridson of America. <laughs> the world will be complete. <laughs> Full circle on that bombshell. Mark, thank you, mate. Thanks, mate. Thanks for listening to Uncensored CMO. I hope you enjoyed that. If you want to never miss an episode again, please do hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're watching on YouTube, hit the subscribe button. Never miss an episode again. Thank you for listening or watching. You can follow me at Twitter at Uncensored CMO or over on LinkedIn. I am under John Evans. See you next time. <laughs>